0: Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Andy Mcferlan, one of the pastors at North Point Community Church. We planted out of Lincoln Berean uh, 15 years ago, almost 16 now, 2005. And so I always look forward when I get invited to come back. Um, we're sure grateful. Many of you um, prayed and gave before I or any of us really were on the scene. So it's just a Always something I look forward to, to come back and to be with you and count it a privilege. So a while back I was out for a walk through the community, and I saw uh, a dad playing basketball with his little boy in the driveway. And it was one of those goals you could lower. I think they brought it down to about six, seven feet, something like that. And this little fella, man, he was working as hard as he could, dribbling, kind of backing his dad down to the basket. But, you know, when he got close... Dad was just taller, and he put the shot up, and you could just swatted away. I'm, I'm kind of walking, watching this go, and uh, pretty quickly, the dad relented, and, and the kid scored, but, but there was a, a few moments there where, where that kid was totally thwarted. He he'd made all this progress, and then it, it wasn't going any further. So the past few weeks as a body, you've begun to look at the book of Acts and, and have seen that uh, the gospel is, is going forward. Uh, in fact, at Pentecost, several thousand come to faith, and you see them starting to gather together, in, both in the, in the temple for teaching and in homes, and, and it, it's progressing. But will it get to the point where it, it gets thwarted, like the, the little boy in, in the driveway at the basket? That's what I want us to think about today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open that to Acts chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to go through uh, chapter 4, verse 4, asking this question, what kind of opposition? What kind of opposition thwarts God's work of restoration? So our passage starts this way. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour of the hour of prayer. So they're going for a public prayer meeting. Uh, On their way... Uh, they're going to encounter somebody with a need. Now, it makes sense that people in need, and I hope it's true, would, would be drawn to God's people. And so uh, this guy has set up shop at the temple for years. We remember verse 2. And a man who'd been lame from his mother's womb, we find out later in Acts, it's more than 40 years, was being carried along, because that's the only way he could uh, get someplace, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful Temple. Why? In order to beg alms of those who are entering the temple. He's going to survive by begging. It's been going on for 40 years. The only way he eats, the only way, you've got to get money from people who are generous and kind. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, what's he do? He began asking to receive alms. That's what he did. Now, I, you know, I'm speculating here, but I bet a lot of times, um, you know, people no, just pass by, just look the other way. You know how it goes. But not Peter and John, verse 4. But Peter and John, Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. You imagine that? You're begging and somebody says, hey, 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 I want you to look at me. You've got to be thinking there's a payday coming, Right? Well, verse 5 confirms that. And he began to give them his attention, expecting what? To receive something from them. Look, if you're just not going to give me anything, you just pass me by, but you stop and you say, hey, I, I need you to look at Man, I- I'm expecting. Verse 6. But Peter said, I did not possess silver and gold. Oh, man. Is this some kind of cruel joke? Hey, look at me. Huh? Got no money. Okay, you got no money. Do you have anything for me? Well, as a matter of fact, Peter and John do have something for him, and he couldn't have imagined what. Second part of verse 6. But what I do have, I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, in the power that is, goes with that name, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. What? I came hoping to make a day's wage so I could live another day, eat you tell me I'm going to walk? Really? I like to step back and think about what, what's going on here. Yeah, there's, there's a, an, an immediate act of restoration, but, but there's something a whole lot bigger happening here. So back when I worked with Campus State at Colorado State, I, I came to appreciate women's volleyball. I would go to all the games, and I came, we moved to here in 2002, and I thought I'd heard they're really good. I thought we'd go, but it's a tough ticket. So about 13 years ago, when somebody said, we got season tickets, we're not going to go to u my wife and I jumped on it. This is back when they're playing in the Coliseum. And let me tell you my first impression when I walked in the Coliseum that night. This program has a legacy. Why did I say that? All these banners, there are the conference championships, and there's the the final four, and there's a national team, there's another national championship, and then all these all-American players, I thought, boy, if if you're part of this program, you're part of a legacy. Goes back now about 45 years-ish or so. If you're part of God's family, even more so, you're part of a legacy. See, what... We're getting on the the ground floor of the legacy, and banners are being hung, but it is not about conference championships. It is not about Final Fours. It is not about national championships. It is about restored lives, and it doesn't go back 45 years. It goes back 2,000 years, and it's been going on and on, and there's this legacy and banner after banner after banner after banner is being hung, and it's a testimony to the restorative work of God. Look, I, I'll watch the, the Oscars on BTN or wherever I go, and, and I, I understand the basic premise of, of volleyball, but I, I don't get the intricacies. And so they'll have a, 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 the camera on cook, and their other team's about to serve me. I'll have this little clipboard there, and he'll go, he's calling play one. I have no idea. I have no idea what play one is. But he does, and his players do, and it usually works. Look, God is working in the same way infinitely more. God is working at another level, and he's doing his thing, and he's been doing his thing 2,000 years, and I want to tell you, it works. The legacy, the restorative lies, being hung, it, it's been happening. 2,000 years. And, and we're getting on the ground floor here in Acts 3. So when we left the passage, the call was, I don't have money for you, but I do have to get up and walk. Boy, you know, God better come through on this one. It's going to look bad. Verse 7 and 8. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthening, and he, he kind of worked his way. No, 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 no. It's not what it says in verse 8. With a leap. This is not kind of, sort of, kind of working into a healing. No, with a leap. He stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Peter and John and the disciples are an extension of what Jesus has done. Jesus, just six weeks earlier, before he'd been crucified, he had a three-year ministry, and he'd been doing that. It had been a fever, it had been a storm, it had been a dead person, and Jesus just spoke, and it 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 changed. And now Peter and John and the others are carrying on that ministry, and it explodes here in the temple. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him, as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. You bet they were And what had happened. So the conversations are going like this. Is that, is that who I think it is? Yeah, I remember when he was born, and I knew his mama, and I knew his grandmama, and, and that's him. What? What is going on? When we seek to apply the book of Acts, we need to remember our genre. This is is a book that's telling about the history of the early church. So we need to be careful about doctrine and theology we draw. It is beyond the scope of this message to talk about healing. But I believe this is a very unique time when God is confirming both the message and the messengers look before jesus came it was 400 years no prophetic word and would-be messiahs are popping up claiming to be the one all the time how would you know how would you know well jesus makes it real clear for us he's the one and he said i'm i'm authenticating these people as my messengers with my message And so Peter and John can command healing like you and I cannot. We can ask for healing, and I do it all the time. But I must tell you, at times I ask and it doesn't happen. More often than not, it doesn't. But it's a unique time. God's authenticating his message and messengers, and they can command healing. So Peter does that, and it happens. And so the result in verse 11 is while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon full of amazement. Now, Peter's got, a, got an issue because the people are amazed with him. You bet they are. This guy said 40-plus years of not walking. All of a sudden, he's jumping around and leaping and kind of what's the deal? So Peter needs to clarify. But Peter, when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety, we made him walk? That's a question, it's a rhetorical question that means no, it wasn't about us. It was absolutely not about us. Okay then, Peter, who was it about? Verse 13, here we go. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they, they would track with that. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. Now Jesus was just on the scene a few Weeks ago, and and they had delivered him to be crucified. And and Peter wants to begin to clear this up. The God who called our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he glorified Jesus. And he he uses the term, his servant Jesus. That is is a term loaded with prophetic implications, servant, from the book of Isaiah. So just to clarify, Peter says, "Let, let let me tell you who this guy was. This is the one, middle of verse 13, whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy One and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So Pilate gave you a choice. Hey, I'll release this murderer to you. Or I'll release this Jesus. And this is the Jesus. that His name we called on just to heal. And, and, and you guys chose to, to release this murderer and have Jesus executed. That's the guy we're talking about here. Now, verse 15. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Okay, now we're going to get an answer. How did this happen? Here we go, verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. We have one of the first banners being hung to the restorative work of God. And Peter says, let me be very, very clear, it happened in Jesus' name, alone. So when we get done with this message, we're gonna sing a song entitled, In Christ Alone. Okay, this work of restoration, it happened in Christ alone. And the 2,000 years I go, I've been talking about where the banners are being hung and the restorative work of God is happening, that happens in Christ alone. So you guys that are amazed and wondering how this happened, it happened in Jesus. Now, uh, imagine you're one of the people who's seen this guy walking, and you were in the crowd six weeks ago saying, crucify him, saying, I want the murderer, take him to the crowd. Imagine you're one of them. How are you feeling? Not too good at this point. Verse 17, and now, brethren... I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Peter wants to say, you acted in ignorance, you didn't know what you were doing, but, but God was not up in heaven going, Father and the Spirit together, going, wow, this, this, this thing really got out of hand. I don't know how this happened. What do we do? No, 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 no. This, this was planned. From eternity past, this was planned the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity working together. But you're still responsible for your decisions. So what? What do you do if you were part of the crowd that put the one God glorified, the chosen one, the servant, the one who in name this guy was healed? What if you were part of the crowd that put him on the cross? Verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing. We're going to come back to that word times of refreshing. But Peter's saying right now, you can have a time of refreshing. Even if you were part of that crowd, you can have a time of refreshing from God that you can't get anyplace else. May come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, and he's up in heaven right now, until the period of restoration. We're in the middle of that. Lives are being restored, banners are being hung to talk about the restorative work of God to the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And when that period is full, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to have a final act of restoration when all sin, all pain, all suffering is put away. See, this guy's had 42 years. He wasn't, 40 plus years he wasn't walking. And there's great celebration, but you know what? The, the truth is he, he'll die again. His body would give out again but there would be another act of restoration for him like everybody else when Jesus comes back. And so Peter's saying, if you were part of that crowd and you're feeling convicted, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. That means you need to turn 180 degrees. You were walking away from God. You need to turn and you need to walk towards God. And you need to put your faith in him. And guess what? If you were part of that crowd, he'll forgive you. And that has huge implications for you and for me. Because some of us have walked in here saying, Andy, you don't know how bad I've been. You're right, I don't. I don't. But I don't need to know. God does. He knows. He knows. He knows everything. (laughs) And he said the offer of forgiveness is still there. If you will repent and turn to me. Look, all of us have rebelled against God. Sin. Wrong actions, wrong thoughts, wrong words flow from that. Jesus, according to the plan of God, we just read it, came and died on the cross, lived the life you and I were supposed to live, perfect submission to the Father, right up to the cross. Died, rises, rose again on Sunday. That you and I could have forgiveness of sin. Boy, if you'd never made that decision, I want to invite you to do that, even where you sit. If you're not sure, please talk to somebody today before you leave. Having made uh, that offer, then Peter goes back uh, And he talks about Moses, verse 22, says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to whom you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Moses was recognized as the greatest prophet of God because he, through him, God did incredible works. Again, it was one of those times where God was working uniquely, powerfully through Moses to confirm the message of the messenger. He would be the one that would deliver Israel uh, from Egypt and so he did a series of 10 plagues on Egypt through Moses and he parted the Red Sea and Israel realized there's never been a work of God uh, working through a prophet like this and Moses said, but there will be one who comes. And Peter said, this is it, this is Jesus. He's that one that Moses talked about long ago that would be greater even than he was. Uh, a word of warning though, verse 23, and every, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed From among the people, verse twenty-four, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken—maybe a little bit of hyperbole there—not every prophetic book speaks directly, but the thrust of the Old Testament, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward, also announced these days: what days? The coming of a Messiah. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. You and I need a Savior because we don't keep the law. So here's the offer. Here's the offer. Verse twenty-five. It is for you, talking to the Jewish people, who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham. So he made a covenant with you. But then he said to Abraham, second part of verse 25, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this blessing is going to go on to the Gentiles, and that is happening, and you will see that unfold in the book of Acts. This offer is made to all of humanity. The whole of the Old Testament pointed towards it. Uh, verse 26, for you first, again talking to the Jewish people, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. But the, the idea that he'd say you first means it will go to somebody else second, and that's me and you and the Gentiles. So you say, Andy, Andy, I mean, you start. remember you started talking to the little boy playing basketball and shot, being blocked, being thwarted, there'd been nothings. No opposition here. Why'd you start with that question? Here's why, beginning of verse, chapter four. As they were speaking to the people, this glorious message, this act of restoration, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, what, wanting to repent, is that what, we've been convicted, we wanna join the movement? No, 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 being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. A little detail you need to know about the Sadducees. I had a seminary professor tell me, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't like this message. And what they really don't like is the crowd running to Peter and John. This is reminiscent of Jesus, and it is threatening their sense of, of control. Look, Israel was a theocracy. So not only did they have spiritual authority, but they had civil authority. They could shut you out from God, and they could shut you out up in prison. That's a good bit of control. So what do they do? Verse 3, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Guess it's game over, huh? Because there's no, there's no Christian legal fund here. There's no Christian alliance. There's there's no lobby in D.C. to to speak and to to demand. They got got nothing in terms of clout and authority. So what? Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The thing keeps going. They're, They're supposed to stop it. They arrest them, they got them in prison, they've shut off the, the voice, and the thing keeps going. And you know what? This is a foreshadowing. The last 2,000 years have been full of opposition. But you know what has happened? The banners keep getting hung, the testimony of the power of the restorative work of God. It's not stopping. There's no opposition. There'll be attempts, all kinds. There'll be cost. There'll be suffering. But this work of restoration will not be stopped. So we started asking this question what kind of opposition thwarts God's work of restoration? Here we go. There is none, there is no work of opposition that will thwart God's work of restoration. There is no work of opposition that will thwart God's work of restoration. So we'd go Friday night, sat down with my wife and son, and we watched uh, the Huskers play Minnesota in volleyball, number four and number five. And the first set, it was six to one Minnesota, and I thought, yeah, this isn't going very well. And in fact, they lost in four sets. And then the second match would be Sunday starting at 11 and I went to church so I didn't get to see it and I you know I fully expected a repeat and I get home to find out that the Huskers swept the team that beat them in four sets so I got online and I read and I read the paper the next day and and coach cook said yeah we had to tweak our rotations a little bit yeah man I apparently you you tweak something but yeah, you know, I haven't. I don't. I don't understand much about volleyball. But this much I've figured out: Coach Cook's pretty good. He's gonna figure it out. You know, that's just a, a microcosm of God. There's stuff going on in this world, and we're going. Ah, oh, how are we going to do it? God's not wicked. He'll figure it out. He's been doing it for two thousand years, and this work of restoration—it's going to keep going. And here's the deal: you and I. Have an opportunity to be a part of that. Okay, it's going forward. It's going to happen. So I don't want to talk about you corporately because Lincoln Breen corporately is killing it with this act of restoration. Around the world, we launched because Lincoln Breen corporately is committed to this. Okay? But I want to talk to us individually because there's no guarantee that we'll be involved. Right before I got up here, we sang this song, I Surrender. Did we sing it and just sing it, or do we believe it? Here's why I'm asking. If you and I are going to be involved, I believe God's going to threaten our sense of control. Just like he did with the priests, the captain of the temple guard, And the Sadducees. Look, if anybody should have been leading that movement, it's that group. They're far more biblically literate than Peter and John ever were. They're they're knowledgeable in God and his stuff, but they weren't. They were standing in opposition. Why? Because Jesus was threatening their sense of control. I don't know how many years we got, but we have a chance to be involved with this work of restoration. We need to surrender our sense of control. Andy, can you flesh that out for me? So I grew up in a home where there was a lot of financial uncertainty. Uh, We moved a bunch. My dad would lose his job. He couldn't get along with his boss. There were fights over money. I remember my dad hitting my mom. Uh, We moved my junior year from suburban Chicago to suburban Houston. So when I started as a freshman at Texas A&M and I went to orientation, I heard that there were uh, six jobs for every engineer, 12 if you were chemical or petroleum engineering. I like chemistry and I like math, so I got into chemical engineering. But something very unplanned happened my freshman year. I, I won't give you the details, but I got into a dorm Bible study. And I heard the gospel every week. And in February, the guy sat down with me again. And, and, and this phrase tripped me up. Um, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not as a result of works. That phrase right there. See, I, I came from a system where uh, I believed in works and it just made sense to me. And, and, and you're telling me, the word of God's telling me, not as a result of works. And, and I, I, mean, I wrestled with that. And finally on that February morning, February morning I thought, either i got to get in or i got to get out i got to stop attending this thing or i got to believe the word of God. The Bible is the word of God and i got to follow it. And I'm, that decision, I thought, I'm in. I'm in. And I remember that afternoon. It was a Sunday. I got back to my dorm room and I just shook because I just thought, I understand I've turned over authority of my life to God. Later, I, I talked with the guy who led me to the Lord and I told him about my whole family thing and, how, and, and he made a very biblical case on why I needed to trust God for my financial security. And I thought, huh, that's really interesting. But inside I thought, no, I just can't do that. I can't turn that over. Because, see, it was so tender to me. It was so, I'd hurt so much from that. I needed, I needed to secure my financial security. Well, along the way, they would, uh, these oil companies would give you these summer jobs, pay you this ridiculous wage to try and recruit you. So I took one my sophomore year, and I took one my junior year. At the end of the summer of my junior year, uh, the guy called me and said, Andy, hey, we really like you. We want to hire you when you graduate. Um, Rick will be into college station in October. He'll tell you what we got, and and you can take your pick of your jobs. Oh, I said outwardly, I said, thank you so much. But inwardly I thought, I hate this. I don't want to do it. So I went back my senior year, got through my senior year chemical engineering, interviewed uh, six times, got five offers, and you think, Oh, Andy, you must have been just a tremendous student. No, that was just simply supply and demand. Every classmate of mine had a testimony like that. So I graduated with a degree I didn't want to use, that I hated. So what do you do when you're in that situation? Well, of course, you go to graduate school. That is why they have graduate school. <laughs> and that sets up, I started an MBA at A&M, and that sets up the conversation uh, at the beginning of my second semester, January. I go back to see one of my chemie profs. Hey, Dr. Holstead, just want to say hi, and how you doing, da da, 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 And then in the course of the conversation, he said, Andy, did you hear all your classmates are losing their job? What? He said, yeah, the price overnight, the price of a barrel of oil went from $36 to $18 a barrel. And your decision's looking real good. I said, Dr. Holstead, I didn't know a thing. He said, by the way, um, A&M has replaced every one of their chemical engineering graduates as we, far as we know. But this spring, we will place less than 25%. I walked away from that conversation thinking, yeah, I, I, I probably need to rethink where I find my Sense of financial security. I need to give over that sense of control. Two years later, after I finished my MBA, I'm working for Campus Crusade, raising full-time support. I never would have answered that call if I hadn't begun the process of relinquishing my sense of control. And I'm picking my words carefully, sense of control. We think we have control, but we don't. Sense of control. Maybe for you it's in the area of intimacy. Intimacy. You, know, you, you want to connect deeply with people, and you're in a dating relationship right now, you're with a group of friends, They're, they don't buy into this as a priority. And God is putting his finger on that and said, you need to move on from that. Well, I can't. I need you to trust me. I need you, you to relinquish your sense of control so you can be involved with this work. Look, it's going forward. The banners are going to be hung. Do you and I want to be involved with it? significance, you're working for a company and you are making, I mean, your sales are good and you, you could be executive VP of sales at some point, but you're working 70 hours a week and truth be told, I mean, you're, you're tacking on some stuff on sales that, that might not be legit, but it's looking good on your bottom line and God's starting to put his finger on that and says, you know, that this is going to have to change, this is going to have to stop and, and he's going you, you need to trust me, God's saying, with your sense of control over your significance. You good with that? You want to relinquish that? Again, the banners will be hung. Will you and I be a part of it? We talked about a period of refreshment, didn't we? Verse 19. Man, it's been a tough year, hasn't it, with the pandemic? We all need refreshment. God says, I'm, I'm here. I'm the one who can refresh you. Some of us are thinking, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe this summer if the case numbers go down, the vaccines, maybe I can do, you know, one of those vacations I saw on social media, somebody put it on Instagram, somebody put it on Facebook, and, and maybe God said, you know, I, I got a different plan for you, I got a short term missions project for you. I want to refresh you on that. Sense of control over refreshment. Are are you willing to relinquish that to God? There's no opposition. There's no opposition that's going to stop this. Nothing's going to thwart it. It's going forward. We have the privilege of being part of the process of hanging the banners of restored lives. I can't think of anything more worthwhile to give our life to. Are we in? I mean, individually, are we in? We're going to hang on to our sense of control and face the fact that we may be standing in opposition. Like the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Philip Anthony is a, an author I really enjoy reading, and I read something about him. He said I became pretty good at chess, and I, I was beaten in a lot of my competition. And I thought, yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a shot at a playing a grandmaster. And he said, I I quickly found out why these people reached the level of grandmaster. And his observation was this. No matter what I did on offense or defense, this guy was at a level so far above me in chess, he just took my move and incorporated it in his strategy to crush me, to put me in checkmate. He was not flustered, he was not bothered. Whatever I did, he'd fit that right in and tick, bang, boom, I was done. Do you understand that is a picture of God in our world? Opposition is going on and we're thinking, what, how? And it's been going on for 2,000 years and it's been pretty exquisite, it's been pretty elaborate, but God is operating at such a level, like that grandmaster, he's taking that opposition and he's just enfolding in his strategy to keep moving forward his work of restoration, to keep hanging the banner after banner after banner after banner, talking testimony to the restorative work of God. What kind of opposition is going to thwart this? There is, there is no opposition that will thwart God's work of restoration. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, um, we're grateful that uh, we get to see the uh, front end of opposition with a powerless people. And yet 2,000 more are at it. And, and what a foreshadowing, what a harbinger of the, the next 2,000 years. Yeah, opposition came and it happened and yet um, you just unfolded that into your work. You just kind of included that and, and, and just moved this work of restoration forward. Lord, we tell you We would like to be a part. We consider it a privilege to be a part of this work of restoration, but we want to hold on to our sense of control. Holy Spirit, would you break us in that? Like I was broken that January. That we would relinquish what is rightly yours so we could be involved in a work that will not fail. pray in Christ's name, amen.